Let's pray one more time as we begin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are glorious. Lord, help me use this clay to lift up your glorious name. Lord, may you conform us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, English Puritan, became known as the heavenly doctor due to his godly preaching and heavenly manner of life. Isaac Walton, a man who knew Sibbs, wrote of Sibbs, Of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Sibbs was a a man of heaven, and it showed forth in his preaching. Sibbs thought that if you were to hold something so precious and beautiful as Christ out and declare simply to the wretched sinner that Christ welcomes all who call upon him in faith, people would draw, would be drawn to Christ. Sibbs understood that to love Christ meant to seek heaven. He wrote in his book titled, Christ is Best, these words. Heaven is not heaven without Christ. It is better to be in any place with Christ than to be in heaven itself without him. All delicacies without Christ are but as a funeral banquet. Where the master of the feast is away, there is nothing but solemnness. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. Friends, if you do not love Christ, you will not like heaven. Because heaven is forever going to be a banquet where Christ is the main course. To look forward to heaven, you must love first the Christ of heaven. Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the chair or pew Bibles in front of you, the page is 572 through 573. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to take that Bible with you. Just consider it a gift from our church to you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. We're going to read the passage together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Friends, Colossae, the city of Colossae was not big or large like a city like Ephesus. But it did make a good amount of profit. It was a decent-sized city, but made much of its income from selling wool. It was located toward the bottom of ancient Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. And you can see from the very beginning of this book that Paul does seek to encourage this church for the fruit he sees in their life. And this is laid out in chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Here, Paul communicates to this church in Colossae his prayer for them and his thanksgiving to God for them and also their fruitfulness after hearing the gospel. We find that Paul learned about this church from a man named Epaphras who told him about this church. More than likely, Epaphras planted the church. That's in chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. And we learn that Paul had never been to this church but wrote to this church with the knowledge that he learned. You can find that in chapter 2, verse 1. And this is also a letter that was written from prison, which we learn from the very last verse in the entire book, chapter 4, verse 18. So Paul's primary concern for the church at Colossae was the threat of false teachers in their midst. He was convinced that the church had been thoroughly grounded in sound doctrine, but he saw a need for greater understanding on their part. So central to that need was a proper knowledge of the supremacy of Christ. So Paul explains his own understanding of Christ, and then he warns the church of the dangers of human philosophy or human religion. Then finally, he exhorts the church to godly living. You can find that in the latter part of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we find that Christ, that in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it is from this certainty that Paul bases their ability to stand against false teachers and false doctrine. So we could say Paul's primary desire for Christians is to know Christ. And as you know him and walk in him, you must put your sin to death and walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. Be who you already are in Christ. 
So leaving off in chapter 2, verse 20, he says there in verse 20, if Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul calls out man-made religion and points out the real problem. Here is the real problem with man-made religion, friends. It will not stop the indulgence of the flesh. Our hearts stay the same. We still want our sin. A fundamental aspect of true religion, which is centered and grounded on Christ, is that it will gradually stop and suffocate the indulgence of our flesh. Now notice I said gradual. Because when the Lord saves you, you, you don't automatically stop sinning. We all know that from experience. But there must be consistent and persistent growth in holiness. So we are left with the question, what stops the indulgence of the flesh? What stops it? And it is with that question in mind that Paul steps into chapter 3. Now friends, in the entirety of this book, up to this point in chapter 3, Paul has been explaining in vibrant colors who Christ is and who we are in him, if you're a Christian. And in this letter, Paul reveals some of his deepest thoughts about Christ. If you want to know more about the, the four main Christocentric or Christological passages in the Bible, these are passages that really explain who Christ was. They were found in First John, or John 1, not 1 John, John 1. Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. So if you ever want to look at who Christ is more in depth, those passages would be helpful to you. And Paul shows a rich background of reading and reflection on the Old Testament. So Jesus is the Son of God, hearkening back to Psalm 2, by whom God made all things. Going back to Genesis 1.1. He is the image of the invisible God, Genesis 1.26. He's going back, he's pulling out language from these Old Testament passages. So really what Paul does is gives shape and pulls the curtain back to the backstage of how God has really created this world and through whom he has created it. So Paul reveals Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as the acting agent carrying out God's will in creating his world. Christ is supreme in creation as the image of the invisible God, the exact and visible expression of God, as the firstborn of all creation, a title which represents his preeminence in rank and priority in time, as the creator of the entire universe, including the angelic occupants of heavenly thrones and all supernatural rulers, as the goal of the whole universe, as the person who is before everything in time and in status. 
and as the sustainer of the universe, maintaining its permanent order, stability, and productivity. In the Old Testament, wisdom existed at God's side before creation and acted as his master craftsman in his creative work. And remember what we just looked at back in chapter 2, with Christ being the embodiment or the exact representation of the knowledge and wisdom of God. And that's referencing back to Proverbs 8, verse 22 through 31. So Paul may have had this passage, Proverbs 8, in mind when he was describing Christ's role in creation. But in Paul's view, Christ is more than the embodiment of wisdom. Because unlike wisdom, he is the uncreated image of God and sustains what he once created. And he is the focus of all creation. And himself himself embodies all the divine attributes. Paul lays out, friends, Paul lays out in clear language that all things were created through his power and for his glory. That means all things, everything, exists as a result of God putting it there through Christ, and they stay there because Christ upholds it. He is also supreme in redemption. As the head of the body, the church, its authoritative ruler and director, as the beginning, the originating cause of the church, and the constant source of its life as the firstborn from among the dead, the pioneer of the resurrection to immortality, as the possessor of all God's fullness, and as the agent of God's reconciliation, Christ is ruler over every cosmic power and authority. So as Paul brings us into chapter 3, he establishes that having died and been raised with Christ, Christians are commanded to set our minds on things above. And flowing from this heavenly mindset are called to put sin to death. Since we are being renewed after the image of our creator, who in Christ doesn't make distinctions in social status, because Christ must harness all our pursuit, and he fills all his people. So throughout our time together this morning, I'm going to lay out five areas that draw out this argument that Paul is giving us here in chapter 3. Point number one. The reality, they're all ours, so this is super helpful here. The reality, and that's in verses 1 through 4. Point number 2, the response, the response. It's verses 1 through 4 as well. Point number 3, the requirement, the requirement, verses 5 through 9. Point number 4, the reason the reason, verses 6 through 7. And then point number 5, the renewed mind, or the, re, the, the renewed mind, um, verses 10 through 11. So let's look at the first point together, the reality. Verse 1 through 4, 
again, reads this way. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first thing I'd like to draw your attention to in this passage is the order. The order matters. Notice that Paul doesn't start with, put your sin to death. Or seek the things that are above. Or even set your mind on things that are above. Although he will get to all these. But he first starts with the statement, if then, or since, you have been raised with Christ. Or move to verse 3 and see the statement, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Or look at verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, Paul is firing off the launch pad of heaven, heavenly realities, things that are already but not yet. Paul is pointing out, painting a rich and vivid picture. He's saying, you have died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've, your life is hidden in Christ. And you will be glorified with Christ when he appears. Now, of course, we have not physically died, you and I, or been raised from the dead. And the term, our life is hidden with Christ, really means that our eternal life is hidden in glory with Christ and secured there until he comes. But what is Paul really doing with these statements, trying to show us who we are in Christ? He is saying that these realities... And only these can empower and motivate you and I to obedience in Christ. Only these things can empower and motivate you and I to obedience in Christ. You cannot set your minds on things above or put sin to death in your life if you have not been resurrected with Christ by placing your God-given faith in Him who resurrected the Son from the dead, and you are united by God through the Spirit to the Son in his death and resurrection. Look very quickly back at Colossians 2, verse 9. He says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, the only way that we can know Christ, seek Christ, set our minds on him, put sin to death in our life, is if we've been united with him. Where the risen Savior first apprehends his people and makes them alive by a spirit operating as the spirit of Christ so they can receive from Christ all the benefits of the work he accomplished on their behalf as their mediator. Faith is only possible because Christ, through the Spirit, has joined himself to us. And in response, we exercise faith toward Christ as an effect of regeneration. With the union complete, we receive from Christ everything that Christ earned. Justification, adoption, and sanctification. Beloved, you and I have in Christ everything necessary to follow him. In Christ we have received what he achieved. You will not set your mind on things in heaven until you love the man of heaven. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays to the Father that all who the Father has given him would see his glory. And John Owen, commenting on this passage, John 17, 24, says this, Only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like magnetized needles, which cannot rest until it is pointing north. So also a believer, magnetized by the love of Christ, will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds his glory. The soul which can be satisfied without beholding the glory of Christ that cannot be eternally satisfied with beholding the glory of Christ, is not a soul from, for whom Christ prays. Friends, in order to obey Jesus, you must have this straight. Obedience to Jesus should overflow from a heart that loves Jesus. Friends, how often do you simply gaze at him through the eyes of faith? How often do you meditate on his promises? How often do you think about the realities of your heavenly position in Christ? How is your worship, your all doing? If your service to the church is extremely draining to you, Friends, there could be a myriad of reasons for that, but it could be that you're serving without worshiping. It could be that you're serving without worshiping. If your worship does not feed your service, then your service will suffocate your worship. This is one of the reasons why, when you become a member of CCBC, there's a three-month probationary period 
where you're not able to serve on a deacon ministry or even a service team. It's not that we're saying you don't have gifts to serve or or the desire to serve. But we want to promote being before doing. We want people to believe before belong. Among the reasons for this is that we want you to first learn to repent, to believe, to know, to love, and worship Jesus. And as you love Jesus and love the members of CCBC, your service will flow from your worship. So I would encourage you, if you're feeling drained spiritually, there's probably a reason for that. Now there's another thing. The Christian life is a battle. And often, being on the front lines of ministry is extremely draining. So we need to learn the difference between I'm in spiritual peril and I'm just fighting the good fight. Because the reality is that we need people to serve in the church. But we need people to stay spiritually moldable as well. Friends, the wax is always softest when it's closest to the fire. Friends, stay close to Christ, worship him, and let your service flow from your worship. Let's look at point number two, the response. The response. Let's read verses one and two together. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So only when we have fixed our eyes on the reality that we have died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, our life is hidden with Christ, and we will be glorified with Christ when he appears, should we seek the things that are in heaven. Second, uh, the second half of verse 1 is explaining the response of the heart to Christ or the command to seek the things that are above. And the second command in verse 2 almost looks like it's repeating the first command. But the verb set at the beginning there of verse 2 suggests this this basic inner attitude that lies behind and is part of the verb seek. It's part of it in verse 1. It's also in the present tense, suggesting that it's a habit of the mind. So basically, Paul is saying, keep thinking about things above. Keep thinking it. Just keep doing it. Verse 2 continues by saying that they are not to set their minds on things of earth. Paul is saying that setting our minds, our hearts, on the things above, not on earthly things, is both necessary and possible. It is necessary because our union with Christ means we no longer belong to the realm of this earth, but to the heavenly realm. It is possible because our union with Christ severs us from the tyranny of the powers of this world and provides us with all the power needed to live a new life in Christ. Friends, we are commanded to seek heaven by thinking heaven. We're commanded to seek heaven by thinking heaven. 
But notice how Paul ends verse 1. He says, verse 1, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In verses 1 through 2, the vague words, things above, is used. Things above. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things above. But the only thing specifically mentioned above is Christ. What Paul is providing us with is the why behind setting our minds on things above. Friends, if you love Christ and know all the benefits you've received through Christ, which increases your love for him more, seek the things that are above because Christ is there. And that is more than enough. He is the only mediator. He is the sun that illuminates, the surgeon that restores, the pillar of fire that preserves and guides, the friend that gives relief, the treasure that enhances, the ark that saves, and the pillar to bear under the heaviest of burdens. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty on high. He is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than Joshua, better than Melchizedek. Better than the prophets, superior to Satan, and the vanquisher of death. To think of heaven is to think of Christ. If Christ is the subject of our affection, then heaven will be the object of our pursuit. Friends, if Martin Luther called Christ the hound of heaven, then we ought also to catch the scent of Christ and stay hard on his trail. Blake has mentioned this before, but I'd like to mention it again. When you get up in the morning, remember three words. Up, in, and out. Look to Christ first. Setting your minds on things above, on him who is above. And second, we look in. Diagnose our affections and our sins. Confess our sins to him. And look through if there's any unforgiveness in our hearts. And then we look to the people around us. We look up by looking to the word of Christ. Heaven without Christ is like an ocean without water. Air or sky without air. Fire without a flame. Christ is the heartbeat of heaven. But I'd like to warn you. Beloved, this means that if we want to go to heaven for another reason, any other reason, than that Christ is there, it's the wrong reason. I'm not saying you can't desire to meet Peter or ask Noah where the ark landed or see your loved ones. But your affection for them, if your affection for them outweighs your affection for Christ, then you desire to go to heaven for the wrong reason. Christ should be the focal point of our pursuit. We should desire to go to heaven because Christ is there. Another warning I'd like to offer you is this. It also means that when the Spirit of God fills his people and acts on their behalf, the Spirit is never the object of the attention. 
Christ is. Friends, it also means that any kind of experience we have that does not lead us to focus on Christ and cherish Christ more is not from God. J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nystrom wrote in their helpful book, Guard Us, Guide Us. It's a very helpful book. And they said this insightful quote, The Spirit is the floodlight or the searchlight picking out and illuminating the Lord Jesus for us. When He, the Spirit, works in us, Christ is not Christ, not the Spirit, is the center of attention. Spiritual experiences that lead away from Christ or bypass Him altogether are not from the Holy Spirit at all. Friends, we need to be careful both to not cherish something in heaven that isn't Christ exclusively and also not to think that God is leading us by his spirit when he simply isn't. If you're sitting there right now and you know, you know you have thoughts right now going through your head. Thoughts of giving credit to the spirits leading in your life. And now you're realizing right now that it simply isn't the spirit. I would encourage you, read the scriptures, read the scriptures, pray and seek wise counsel from those who understand how to distinguish the spirit's work and when the spirit isn't working in your life. If you're a man, woman, child, mother, father, wife, husband, grandparent, doctor, electrician, lawyer, plumber, car salesman, farmer, under authority, over authority or in authority, afflicted, widowed, or you're fighting sin on a Friday night, how do you set your mind on things above? You might say, Jansen, how do I set my mind on Christ when my toddler won't stop screaming? And I feel like pulling my hair out. Or you're a teacher, and you're in the classroom, and you feel the same thing. You can't get anyone in line. Or you're single, and you're wrestling with contentment in Christ. Or you're a middle-aged man or woman, and you're asking, is this it? Is this all life offers? Or Jansen, how can I set my mind on Christ when I'm wrestling through the burden of this sickness that he gave me? Friends, I would encourage you with these things. Number one, think heavenly thoughts by setting your mind on what Christ has already done for you. Focus on what Christ has already done. Not what he could do, what he may do. Stop looking to the horizon and look at where the Lord has put you. Number two, pray that the Lord would help you value what heaven offers, which is Christ. Pray that the Lord would give you an affection for him. And number three, pray that the Lord would make you thirst for heaven and would prepare your heart for it. 
Find some hymns. Friends, one of the best medicines for a, a heart that wants to seek heaven or is going through difficulty is to find a good hymn. And set your minds on Christ, things above, by listening to those hymns. Recite them to yourself. Sing them to your heart. They will increase your joy in Christ. And from this ground of setting our minds on things above, Paul launches out to the commands of verses 5 through 9. So let's read verses 5 through 9 together. And this is point 3, the requirement. The requirement. Verse 5 through 9, read this way. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We'll end there. Friends, here is when Paul takes a turn to discuss what this looks like in the life of a believer. What does it practically look like for a person to set their mind on things above? He stays on the application heavy side throughout the the remainder of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. What we have in verse 5, 8, and 9 are three commands, or uh, three, uh, yeah, three commands with two lists given there. And the final command only has one. There's no list. It's just a command. So verse 5 has some extreme language in reference to sin. I mean, we're talking extreme. The word in the Greek literally means, when the the word there in in verse 5 says, put your sin to death, it literally means to slay or to make dead your sin. Basically, Paul is saying to kill your sin. Kill it. These sins listed in verse 5 are listed, moving from specifically outward behavior to general inward behavior inclinations and thoughts. And the way verse 5 ends is with Paul clarifying that this is idolatry, referencing all the sins he just mentioned. So sins like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness betray a focus on earthly matters, inconsistent with a believer's new identity and focus in Christ. It betrays it. It shows that they're not setting their mind on things above. Sexual immorality includes all sexual sins, such as adultery, premarital sex, prostitution, incest, and I would include pornography. Impurity refers to sexual sins that are unnatural. A good reference for this is Romans 1, 24 through 27. This points to homosexuality as an example of such impurity. Passion refers to the shameful desires that lead to immoral sexual acts. So it's the desires behind the act, the passion of our hearts. Evil desires refers to the craving for forbidden things, things that are not ours. Covetousness 
refers to a desire to have more than one needs. Paul equated such materialism with idolatry. Since it is a subtle form of worshiping the created things rather than the creator himself. All created things exist for the glory of Jesus Christ. However, when people assume that accumulating more things is the key to their happiness, they unwittingly assign material objects of value and importance that belongs only to God. The second list of sins, in verse 8, are primarily focused outward or affect others more outwardly. Now, of course, the first set mentioned in verse 5 definitely affect people on the outside, but they are not as outward focused. They're more me-focused and not we-focused. Put away, in verse 8, literally means to take off or remove something and, and may suggest the familiar Pauline language that he uses in other places, like Romans 13 and Ephesians 4. So all the sins, all of these sins listed relate to behaviors that disrupt interpersonal relationships. And in verse 9, Paul singles out one sin. And it is lying. Now why does he spend one verse on this but have a list for the rest? Well, Paul is showing us that what ought to embody Christians who have died with Christ and been raised with Christ is a desire to keep themselves from spreading lies among the church and to keep truthful speech as a standard in their life. Notice the one another statement at the end of verse 9. Paul is specifically talking about spreading lies among the body of Christ. Also see that Paul is following the order of the Ten Commandments, listed in Exodus chapter 20. At the end of verse 5, Paul calls those sins idolatry, which means they are specifically sinful against God by dethroning him and putting sex in his place. All five sins in verse 5 are about that. And in verse 8 through 9, while all sin is idolatry, there are all sins. These are all sins that affect the community of faith. Friends, here I'd like to say, if we're here, if you're here, just because we want the negative effects of our own sin to leave, and the positive, the positive benefits of Christ to come, we want Christ for the wrong reason. Christ is the prize, not our freedom from sin. We need to get that straight. Christ is the prize. And in prizing Christ, prayerfully our sin will deplete. Even if somehow we stop sinning, though we are not seeking Christ, friends, the seedbed of sin will lay hard in the soil of your heart and will spring up again and torment us 
bringing us to despair. If not in this life, then it will in the next. Even if we put away the worst thing, our sin, it doesn't mean, that, it doesn't mean by implication that we'll gain the better thing, Christ. Christ is the medicine for our heavenly ailments. And he is the antidote for our earthly sin. Even in killing sin, we are not the ones who can kill sin. Only Christ can do that in us through his spirit. In the desire to kill sin in our hearts, we ought to desire Christ more. In our love for Christ, we need to hate our sin. And if you're here and you don't want to fight sin, your sin in your life is more like a little dog in the corner that you just continue to pet and you just leave it there rather than fight against your sin. Friends, you didn't, then you do not realize that it was your sin that put Christ on the tree. If we love the Savior and know that it was our sin that made his inhumane death necessary, then we ought to hate our sin. We ought to hate it. Our sin is what required our Savior to be slayed on that cross. Friends, you know the hymn, don't you? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch, that's you and I, his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin, my sin, your sin, our sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast of anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Friends, how could a Savior forsake the people he died for when the holes from the nails are still visible in his hands? We often don't hate our sins until we see his wounds. Jesus might say, look at my side. This is what your sins cost. Gaze at his wounds until you hate your sins. If you think, or if we think, our sin isn't a big deal, then we probably think the same thing about Christ's cross. We are called, empowered, and commanded to kill sin in our lives. Remember the classic John Owen text, or the quote, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. John Piper has this, Quote from an article, 13 Practical Steps to Killing Sin. 
If you want the article, I can send it to you. It's very helpful. Number one, I'd like to share these with you. Number one, take heart from the truth that the old sinful you is decisively already dead. Your old self has died. And now you're alive in Christ. Number two, consciously reckon or consider the old man dead. That is, believe the truth of Scripture about the old man's death in Christ and seek to live in that freedom. Number three, cultivate enmity with sin. You don't kill friends, you only kill enemies. Sin ought to be our enemy. Number four, rebel against sin's coop or its luring. Refuse to be bullied by its deceits and manipulations. Number five, declare radical allegiance to the other side, to God, and consciously put all your mind, your heart, and body at his disposal for the righteousness, his righteousness, and purity. Number six, Don't make any plans that open up the door for sin's entry. Remember Proverbs 7. Remember Proverbs 7. Don't even go down the street. Number seven, know the spirit of the age and consciously resist conformity to it. Number eight, develop mental habits that continually renew the mind in God-centeredness. Number nine, admit failure and confess all known sin every day. Ask for God's forgiveness. Number 10, ask for the Spirit's help and power in these things. Number 11, be a part of a a larger and smaller fellowship. That means a church. Where, you can, where you're exhorted often to beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Number 12, fight your sinful impulses with all your might as a boxer fights an opponent and as a marathon runner fights fatigue. Number 13, beware of the works of the law. But let all your warfare be the work of faith. Brothers and sisters, fight tooth and nail against your sins. Fight because God's wrath will be poured out on them in the judgment. Which brings us to our fourth point, the reason. So you have the reality. And this is the reason in light of the requirements of the reality. Verse 6 and 7 read this way. On account of these, referencing the sins that were just mentioned, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Friends, these verses are why we kill our sin. They are why. At the final judgment, God's holy wrath will rip off the disguise that made these sins so alluring and bar 
the persistently disobedient from God's kingdom. Not only should we desire to put our sin to death, but we will, by God's grace, if we have died with Christ, been raised with Christ, and will be glorified with Christ. If you're a Christian, there will be a progressive growth in holiness and desire to kill sin in your life. Beloved, hell is not vaguely for bad people. We often say that. It's not vaguely for bad people. It is for the disobedient and unrepentant people. A perpetually unrepentant heart is what paves the way to hell. Verse 7 says this, and we'll read verse 7 again. In these, these sins, you too once walked when you were living in them. Now there is a contrast, big contrast being made between living in Christ, back in verse 3, and now living in sin, in verse 7. The contrast is that you're in Christ now and you're no longer in sin anymore. The principle is that you're no longer that person because you've died and been raised with Christ. Friends, the principle is this. Universal obedience is required. It's not optional. Universal obedience is required. John 3, 17 through 18 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Friends, the first sin against God by any person is the sin of unbelief. And we're all guilty of it to some extent. If we don't want to believe in him and obey him, you're condemned. See, all men and all women are sinners. All of us are. And we can't do anything to save ourselves. But Jesus Christ, God's Son, is a perfect savior for sinners, even the worst sinners. The Father and the Son have promised that all who know themselves to be sinners and put their faith in Christ as Savior shall be received into favor, and none will be cast out. None. And God has made repentance and faith a duty required of every man who hears the gospel See, friends, God is holy. God is holy, and by necessity of his character, he hates sin. And through Adam, all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short because we can't please a holy God. We're sinners. We're not holy. And because God is just, he will judge every sin. He must and he will pour out his righteous wrath against our sin. Remember, he's a good judge. A good judge always enacts the punishment. 
you and I had no hope. No light at the end of the tunnel. No way to escape God's just wrath. But God sent His Son to this earth, and His Son lived a holy life and completely pleased the Father. Not a sliver of His life was displeasing to God, and He willingly laid down His life and died for sinners like you and I. And on the third day after His death, He rose. He rose again, conquering death and sin forever and made a way for sinners like you and I to repent of our sins and place our faith in Him. Non-Christian, if you would just turn from your sins, you would be saved from God's wrath to come. Friends, I plead with you. Turn from your sins and follow Christ. God would declare to you that he nailed your sins to the cross and laid those sins upon his son. And his son died to take the wrath we deserve. Friends, this lead us, leads us to our fifth point. Number five, the renewed mind. This is a shorter point, and then we'll wrap up. The renewed mind. Let's read verses 9 through 11 together. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul sums up this passage with how God creates a new people through Christ. Friends, this is what we're dealing with here in verses 9 through 10 or 9 through 11 is the product the product of all the things we've mentioned. They lead to this, a people with a renewed mind. First notice that it's the renewing of knowledge that takes place, that you're being renewed in your mind, not our emotions. Second, notice that we're not being renewed into the image of our original state or the original Adam. We're not being remade into the image of the original sinless person, Adam, in Genesis 1 and 2. No, we're being made into the image of the Creator Himself, Jesus Christ. The word self there in, in verses 9 through 10 literally mean the old man. It literally just means the old Adam. That in Christ we have... Put off the old Adam with his practices and ways and have put on the new Adam and all the righteousness that comes from him. See how the pattern is repeated in verse, from verses 5 through 9? Verse 10 talks about the personal putting off of the old self and putting on of the new self. 
And verse 11 talks about what the community that does this looks like. There are people whose all is Christ. Christ is in them, and they are in Christ forever. There is no distinction between people groups, ethnicity, background, home life, whether you're Australian, Mexican, Brazilian, Korean, Chinese, Russian, Japanese, Irish, English, Scottish, French, and the list goes on. If you're in Christ, he is your all. And you have more unity with your brother or sister in Christ, who is Japanese, than you do with your own immediate family if they're not Christians. Christ is over all. And we must set our minds on that reality. He is the beloved Son in, through, and for whom all things were made. He is the head of the church and the one who reconciles all things to himself. He is Lord. He is all that matters. CCBC, friends, set your minds on things above where Christ is and put your sin to death. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a good father. Though you hate sin and you desire to see your people hate sin, Lord, we know that you desire the best for us, that the best thing for your people is to relish and cherish Christ, to look to Christ as our glory and every fulfillment for our life. Lord, we thank you that bringing you glory does us most good. Lord, we thank you that you've given us passages like Colossians 3 to help us fix our eyes on things above. Lord, I pray that for us now, that we would learn to seek the things that are above where Christ is, that we would learn to set our minds on things above, that we would learn to put sin to death, that we would learn to put our sins away, that we would learn not to lie to one another so that we could be a renewed people in Christ. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.